You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast, a show by the uh, Blog to Watch team, and we have a special guest who uh, I've actually always thought would be great for the Blog to Watch team. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. This is Mr. Gary Getz. Gary is an aficionado and a lover of watches and a collector who, like me, has been serendipitously roped into the watch industry. Would you Would you agree with that statement, Gary? I'd say serendipity is a, is a good way to put it. And uh, yeah, I just started off as a guy who kind of started liking watches and over the past 20 years just seemed to be sliding down the slippery slope more and more. It's, it's a funny thing because there's a lot of people out there that like watches and remain very steadfast in collector communities. And there are others that, for whatever reason, have found themselves mingling with the industry itself. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means But just sort of in general, um, I want to ask right now, when people ask you what your role is in the watch industry, you know, especially not people like me, but just sort of general people that want your advice and things like that, how do you think they see you? How do you think your position is to a novice watch collector out there that might see some of your media and some of photography? I guess the question is, how do you think that you're utilized by, by more novice collectors like you? I, you know, boy, that's, that's an, it's an interesting question. I, I guess the, the 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 thing that strikes me is that I think I'm just kind of out here on my own, and you know I'll take pictures and put them up on my Instagram page, or write articles, or you know what, whatever I do, post uh, responses to people. And uh, I guess what 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 I've learned is people actually are out there reading this stuff. Uh, and uh, the way I learned that was that there was an incident a couple of years ago um, where. There was a, it was involved an auction house and they had a particular item for sale. And I made a remark out of an offhanded fun, you know, I thought it was a fun remark on it. And, uh, I got a lot of responses and blowback and everything. And, and, uh, I've talked to my, my then offended friend at the auction. I say, well, who listens to me? And he said, well, actually, you know, more people than you think. And right. I, I, you know, I think that, that to the extent that, that, uh, newer collectors uh, look to me. I'm, you know, I'm guessing. You know, the way they get into, they like the pictures. Uh, I'm someone who uh, loves watches. I'm kind of an unusual collector in that I'm pretty public about it, and I'll write stuff about why I bought a certain piece or didn't buy a certain piece, and encourage people to develop their own tastes. I mean, it's, I think in some ways it's it's more about uh, sharing. And and people look to me as someone who's pretty transparent about um, you know why it is I do it and what excites me about it and kind of sharing the emotional highs of it and and helps them think about uh, how they can uh, channel their own enthusiasm and maybe build their own collections. Right, and that's sort of the goal, right? We want other people to like this hobby as much as us. Us, but along the way, we start making friends in the industry, and then there's sort of this social component to everything we say where it's like is so and so going to be upset with us what you know when did you first realize that it wasn't just other enthusiasts that were you know consuming your opinions 
it made a very big impact on the industry itself. When when did you realize that? Well, I I you know, there's 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 one manufacturer um, or one brand, you know, they're part of a group, and um, it's been I don't know four or five years ago now uh, that um, uh, the the CEO at, uh, of that brand at, at a gathering asked a bunch of us. Um, our thoughts on how they could improve the brand, reach out to people, you know, engage better with the uh, with uh, the collector and enthusiast community, and and really turn into a, a a more successful brand overall. And and people were offering a lot of opinions, uh, you know, kind of off the cuff after a few drinks. And, and I said, look, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to tell you anything. I'll write you a letter. Uh, and I wrote him a letter uh, the next week, um, and. Then and I thought, well, you know, it'll probably go into the great void. Uh, but um, he wrote back to me. He said, "Boy, you know, these are some pretty interesting thoughts. I don't agree with all of them, but uh, we're having a management offsite this week, and I've sent it out to the entire management team. <laughs> and I'd, I'd been pretty frank about uh, some of my thoughts on, you know, some of their marketing efforts and product policy and all the rest of that stuff. And I thought, oh, geez, you know." That's going to be a big problem, but as it turned out, you know they they actually uh, were really appreciative. And since then, I've run uh, a, a collector panel discussion, private panel discussion for them, um, where the brand folks were actually watching, you know, through a two way mirror from the back room. I'm going to do another one of those with them on, on Zoom uh, later this month. And so it, that probably is, you know is is probably the when I figured out that maybe there was some, you know, some industry folks actually thought that that I was representative of a certain type of enthusiast or had access to other people or opinions uh, and could could help them think differently about their their own uh, their own products. And well, congratulations. You've introduced them to the idea of a focus group. Now, maybe yeah. they'll use it. Yeah. Well, you know, the, <laughs> the, the funny thing is that, you know, apparently this is like this is like the first time anyone at that brand had ever thought about doing a focus group and, uh, you know, let alone doing one. <laughs> so it is kind of, you know, one of those things where it's like, gee, you know, brands have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> it, it's funny though, because, you know, this industry is literally several hundred years old and you and I, you know, we both live and worked in California and there's a particular type of way of doing business here, way of speaking. There's, of course, we're polite here, but it's also considered impolite to not actually share your thoughts and, and to give your opinion. So using the sort of business mentality that had been developed here, especially in sort of the, 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 the West Coast of, of America, we take that same mentality to Europe and it's like completely all wrong. We have to learn total new, new skills. And you, again, you have a management background, so it probably came to you more easily. But I was talking to my team the other day and, you know, we were just sort of going over 2020 and things like that. And, and I remember having to say to them, listen, guys, it's one thing that I had to develop the ability to take my watch enthusiasm and run a magazine. It's another thing altogether to have to become an expert in like cross-cultural diplomacy and negotiations. Like <laughs> UN levels of negotiation skills are actually necessary, I think, when it comes to speaking to certain members of the, of the watch industry. Might you agree? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I it, it, it runs both ways. I mean, you know, and uh, a, a dear old friend of mine and a guy I'm sure you know, Alex Gottby, um, yeah. you know, he was uh, he had been an attorney for years and he got into the watch business with Vacheron Constantin. 
And uh, I've known him, God, you know, through the purists for 20 years. And uh, so the, the greatest thing he ever said to me, and I should have paid attention, was if you love watches, don't get involved with the watch business. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's like if you love food, don't go into the kitchen at the restaurant. Right? It's the same kind of thing. You don't start a restaurant. Um, yeah. But it goes both ways. Right. As you say, uh, there's there's a you know there's a language there 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 are things that can be said can't be said uh but also going the other way uh i think you know particularly in switzerland you know everyone knows everything but no one says anything there's kind of this uh you know vow of silence thing that goes on where uh and i think again in american business uh, and and in california dealings right um you're pretty open about stuff and if someone does something uh good or bad right you feel pretty comfortable uh, sounding out people about it, asking them about it. Um, but in the watch business, I think Swiss watch business in particular, um, you know, it's kind of hush hush. And, and especially if you're not an insider, uh, you know, as a wacky American, I mean, it, there's good and bad. As a wacky American, you can sometimes get away with saying outrageous stuff because they kind of expect it. But on the other hand, you can easily get on the wrong side of people. By, just by saying something that everyone actually already knows and admits, but you're not supposed to talk about. I, I think, and again, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm trying to think about how to best explain this to the listeners, because it's kind of a, a murky topic if you don't have a lot of context. Um, one of the things which is sort of interesting is that Swiss watchmakers treat pretty much everything they do like it's like a government secret, like national security is somehow going to have an implication if somebody learns about a product or a decision they're about to make. They take themselves uh, potentially too seriously. And it's great. It's great to take yourself seriously when you make an expensive product. But I think that, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of cultural elements there that, that, that explain that. And when we go there, like they're a country that's used to having foreigners come there to do business with them, to like their stuff. There's never like an explanation like here's how to deal with the Swiss or here's something different, different in Switzerland there's this expectation that you just sort of figure it all out, despite the fact that they give you no instructions. Yeah, it's it's true, and and you know, for better or worse, it's 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 an insider's it's an insider's game. You know, I uh, lived in Chicago for many years, did business in Chicago, and Chicago is kind of an insider's town where if you know people in the companies and you know people at the law firms and all, they know that then life is great. If you're on the outside trying to break in, it's not easy at all. Uh, no, it, it's it's not. And and the funny thing is the watch industry is always talking about wanting, you know, new blood. I mean, the fact that you and I as outsiders were ever embraced was I believe as a function of them wanting new blood. Yet they seemed at the same time also be heavily resistant to new things. What do you think is the the reason for this this dichotomy of them needing outsiders but at the same time also being very close to outsiders? What causes this interesting problem? Ooh. Um, I, I saving all the hard questions for you, Gary, about to say that's, you know, that's, that's the, like the $42 question right there. I, I think, as you said, right, it's an industry with a lot of tradition. Uh, it's an industry in which apprenticeship is tremendously valued. Um, you know, I think, and I think particularly about independent watchmakers who, um, uh, have done restoration. They've studied the works of past masters. They've apprenticed with the greats. Um, you know, and, and that's hard won knowledge. Um, uh, you know, Philippe Dufour, the world's greatest living watchmaker, right? His famous saying is the, the graveyards are full of watchmaking secrets. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because you just don't, you don't tell. 
Um, and I think similarly, um, you know, in in luxury goods management, and I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm not don't know people really in the perfume business or or couture or anything, um, but some in jewelry. I th- I think there is an assumption that you have to have been in that specific business to really know the business. Uh, and that otherwise, you know, that if you try to bring in general lessons from other other businesses or categories that, well, that's really not how we do things here. Now, let's talk about what's in it for people like us who are enthusiasts when it comes to participating in the industry. Because like you said, and given Alex's uh, uh, sage advice, if you really like this thing or anything for that matter, it's best to appreciate a little bit from afar. You get too involved in politics and relationships. It can it can have a negative effect on something you like. Yet with that said, and again, I say this because we both came to this as first being interested in watches, there's access and relationships that we can build and um, good deals that we can get. As a watch lover, if you're able to navigate these wa- waters properly, there's there's a lot in it for us. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's it, absolutely. I think, you know, the, you used uh, what to me is the, the magic word, which is access. Um, you know, and, and I, I and I'm sure it's not just watch enthusiasts, right? It's anything if you're a telescope lover or what, anything else. You know, kind of getting on the inside of things and seeing how they work. Um, it's interesting, uh, and and uh, and the people are. You know, this is, I think, it's especially true, I guess, of of the watch business. But I think people who are mad about art or anything else would say the same stuff. The people are great, right? The people are great, and so. Uh, you know, access and relationships, right? The two things you mentioned, that's, that's really what it's about from my perspective. And, and, you know, the first, the first time I went with my buddies to uh, the big trade show, the Geneva trade show, SIHH, um, and they'd been going for many years. And I kind of was the, the new boy on the block and just seeing the inside of that show and, you know, all, all the walls, as you know, are, Kind of this ivory-colored uh, linen or whatever—you <laughs> know, <this> fantastic, <laughs> fanciful, you know, beige, ivory-colored city uh, with all the the luxury brands and you know having people take them out of trays and showing the new watches to you and meeting the brand executives and people who you've only read about. Uh, it's you know, it's like a child's first Christmas. It's true. It's true, and and we get a sensation of how lucky we are when we're able to go to an event with other collectors that don't have our access and you see how excited they are to see things that we've seen a while ago or we were able to, you know, spend more time with where there'll be like, you know, 30 collectors in a room and two watches. And we're like, yeah, we had one-on-one time with that a long time ago. It, there's a good feeling associated with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. 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 And, and to, to be fortunate enough that, yeah, say, look, I, I was in a, a, a room with, you know, there were three of three of us enthusiasts, and there were two people from the brand, and we saw every single new watch that they were launching, and every 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 metal, every color dial, every every type of strap. I mean, whatever it is, we got to play with them and handle them and photograph them, you know, before they were ever released to the public. Um, it's exciting and it's fun, uh, and and then to go to the workshops, um, you know, and see. You know, at, the, at the big companies, the big manufacturers, just to see how they do it and how it's different and, uh, you know, is cool. And then, uh, you know, we really haven't talked much yet about the small independent makers where maybe it's, you know, 10 people or five people or one person um, making watches and just to understand their story and, 
you know, you, you do get this tremendous access to, to the greats, right? To the, kind of like the Picassos of the watch business, uh, you know, and they're all there pretty close together. And, you know, if you know people who know them, you can drive around and visit. And uh, it's, it's just really a fantastic uh, privilege. And it's, and it's just, I don't know, to me, it's, it's engrossing and just learning how it is they think about it and how they do it is really great for me. And it, it helps us appreciate it, right? Without learning those things, without access, we're not actually able to be as well-rounded watch lovers because not knowing how something is made means you just can't appreciate that part of it. So in effect, this has given us an ability not just to have access for, you know, for bragging rights, but you can't really be a total watch lover and enthusiast without being able to dive into the world that makes them, that designs them, and that markets them. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one reason I'm I'm feeling, you know, kind of deprived. You know, I got the the jitters because you know <laughs> the current world situation. Um, you know, I'm feeling a little stale. Right? We haven't been able to get out there and and see the people and meet them and and hear from them other than virtually, uh, but actually go and hands-on see what people are working on and, and ask them questions and have them show you stuff you never would have thought about that's kind of second nature to them. You know, I mentioned uh, Philippe Dufour earlier, you know, you go to his workshop um, and he works, you know, pretty much by himself and he's forgotten more about watchmaking than most people will ever know. And He'll show you a little demonstration of a technique or something, or he'll pull out of this safe of his, always in a back corner, right? There's some watch from the 1800s or something. And right. he'll say, see how they did that? And that's why I do this. It's like, holy cow. And if you drove through the part of Switzerland where Mr. Dufour and his contemporaries live, you probably wouldn't even know that they make watches in the region, right? You would just drive through its kind of quaint little countryside, but just sort of going to what you said about sort of access, if you're not invited, you don't even know that this is happening in the city you're driving through. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, even the big buildings, right? There aren't a lot of signs on them. And it could be that they're making the greatest watches of the world or they're, they're making, you know, I don't know, faucets or something. You never know. Never know. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, uh, Mr. Dufour, his, his workshop, is, as you know well, it's in an old uh, schoolhouse, you know, a little one-room right. schoolhouse. I don't know if he actually went to school there or not, but you go in. And, <laughs> He's and, not that old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, probably not. But uh, you go in there and the the hooks, right, where the kids hung their coats, they're still on the wall, right, yeah. by the door, you know, three feet off the ground or whatever, where the kids hung their – and you, you could drive by that building a thousand times and never know that there was anything going on in there. Um, it's all, you know, a little white clapboard house out, out of, you know, basically at the corner of a small road and a smaller road, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and it's, it's really you know, been, been my great fortune through the friends I've made, um, you know, that they, they were already in, uh, yeah. And, and so I got to tag along and then, then, you know, you kind of picked up from there. So let's go back in time a little bit. And I want to sort of preface this part of the conversation with sort of a little anecdote. I was listening to a marketing expert recently. We were in a conversation and they were talking about doing a survey of the watch industry online uh, as compared to others. And they were shocked that forums are still like even a thing in the watch world, right? Like website forums were kind of big about 
you know, 10 to 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was, you know, or even into the 90s. And in most other industries, the forum as a tool to disseminate information, to connect people, has sort of gone by the wayside. There's just not that many of them. But, but in the watch space, um, it's still sort of very much a thing today. And you began your, I'll call it the, the, the community element of being a watch lover on a forum. Those are, of course, less important today. But what, are, what was things like back then that's different right now? Thinking about 10, 15 years ago, you still had the same enthusiasm for watches. But when it came to what's available for enthusiasts, community, how has the sort of community side of being a watch lover online changed over the last 15 or 20 years from your perspective? You know, it, the, the, I guess the thing I, I'd stress is the, the needs that people have are exactly the same. It's just the way that they fulfill them are different. And so, okay. you know, 20, 20 years ago, people wanted information. They wanted to affiliate with each other. They wanted to, you know, make new friends. They, they wanted to exchange opinions and argue and, you know, about stuff. Um, and the thing that you had was the forum. Right, so there, there were, you know, there was the purists, there was Time Zone, um, there, were, you know, some others, but those were the two that I, you know, participated most in, and and uh, you know, b- back in the day, it's it's like anything else, right? Uh, the more similar things are, uh, the the more they dislike each other, right? So it was like the purists versus the Time Zoners, and uh, <laughs> which was kind of funny, you know, I was like, well, I remember that, yeah, well, time the Time Zone guys said, yeah, well. And it turned out, of course, they were all lovely people. But and you're not you're not, you're forgetting the the purist pro versus purists. Oh yeah, well that yeah because well you're selling out and you know, oh my god yeah so <laughs> I started in the days of of you know the purists uh, and that was something I, I I was I hadn't bought a watch in in several years and I was kind of interested in in finding a certain watch and. I just stumbled on the thing online, you know, doing a search. And this was maybe 2002, 2003. And uh, asked, gee, you know, I'm interested in this watch. What do you think of this watch? Uh, and and then people started, you know, writing back to me. And uh, uh, and the, the thing was that the, the thing about a forum that is great is that it's moderated, right? So, and, and the fora were... Uh, civil areas for civil discourse. They had rules, right? And so uh, sometimes very strict rules. Sometimes very strict rules. Yeah, you could get thrown and and no shilling, right? Uh, you know, which is a term I haven't heard anyone use in a while. But basically, All right. You know, if if it was like if if a certain brand did a favor for you or gave you a big discount or something, or you know, and it was seen that you were promoting the brand for some kind of personal gain, you'd get thrown off. I mean, I remember there was people that used to complain that they would get banned for mentioning a price or something like that. Like there was yeah. there was very little infra- like small infractions that you could be guilty of that today yeah. wouldn't even be a thing. Yeah, that's actually yeah, you, you raise a great point. I mean, you didn't talk price, uh, and but the great thing about it was that you you learned. I mean, back to the thing we were talking about on how you deal with an industry that's fairly closed and where there are a lot of maybe archaic rules about how you interact with. Well, you learned how to do that. Right. You right. learned how to, to, to use some kind of subtle commentary or to express a point of view in a way that wasn't offensive or to say, hey, you know, Ariel, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I understand that you, you like that particular watch. But here's what bugs me about it. And it really promoted an open exchange of ideas, uh, which is something to some extent we're, we're, I think we're missing a little bit today. It's actually amazing you mentioned that because what I'm realizing is that 
despite your sort of professional background, the education you got in, I'll just use the word diplomacy because that's what it is, on the forums prepared you very well once you actually started meeting watch industry people in person. And and I, I mentioned that because I've seen a lot of people that, you know, uh, or are an enthusiast, didn't participate on forums, but just decided one year, like, I want to go to Basel World. And then they go to Basel World thinking like, oh, what Gary and Ariel does is pretty easy. All I need to do is introduce myself to these brand people and I'll have the same access as them. And these people don't know the cultural nuances, are trying to shill maybe services and things like that and, and get doors slammed in their face. And I think it's interesting that there's a lot of people, maybe people have mentioned this to you or not, but it appears what we do is easier than it actually is until they start doing it. They're like, man, this isn't simple. Yeah, it, yeah. And, and I think, you know, also, you know, the, the reason, you know, not, now I'm going to be the old guy for a second, right? The, the forums, you know, they, yeah, they still exist and there are people who contribute actively to them. But as in most, most uh, you know, categories, they've, they've declined. And I think the reason is it's too hard. You know, there's there's no like button uh, on on time zone, right? Uh, <laughs> basically, if you post something and I want to comment, at first I have to think up a title. You know, I enjoyed your post on the blah blah blah. Okay, and I have to then I I want to be civil, right? You know, I really enjoyed your post and I liked your photo, particularly the third photograph in which you know, and then you express your point of view and blah, you know, well you learn <laughs> how to write, which is great, um, but and you also learn how to you know express differences in opinion without offending, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Right. And so, you know, here comes Facebook. It's got a like, a like button, right. You just click on that and you say like three words and then you get to Instagram, uh, where you just tap on the thing, uh, and, and, or use like a barf emoji. Okay. Well, as you said, right. You, you don't learn to interact with people by posting barf emojis. Uh, and no, so, no, no, no. You, know, you don't want a lot of friends either. No, and so I think you know that this is where the old guy part comes. You, know, you see people who go, as you say, go to Basel or or to Geneva to the fair, and and they they just kind of think they own the place, and and they say, oh, you know, the, the such and such a brand. Ooh. Well, you know, that's not how you do things. And and yeah, the extent that you get into those conversations, it's because you know the people you've built up relationships over a period of time. You know, maybe in the case. Um, I think, you know, the relationships I have with people at, at uh, Patek Philippe, I was not really a Patek Philippe collector. I have friends who are big Patek Philippe advocates, but they, the, some of the people there had read some of my stuff uh, and, you know, having a body of work, uh, you know, and, and you, of course, may have, maybe have a larger body of work in, in describing this business than anybody. But that, <laughs> that, but that counts for something, you know, to, that people... Uh, they see where you're coming from, that there's a, there's a body of commentary that you've made over the years and maybe they're aware of it. Maybe they've read some stuff. Maybe they talk to people and say, well, how about this guy, Gary or Ariel? And, on, and they say, well, you know, he doesn't like everything, but he's pretty fair-minded. Well, that, that counts for something. Right. No, that, that's, that's important. I'm thinking in my mind as well, you know, what is it from the old world of the collector's communities that might be very relevant today? Because today... You know, it's, it, I don't want to sound elitist about it, but there's something about if the bar of being a watch lover or participating in the community is lowered, meaning it's just as simple as, you know, making an Instagram account as opposed to being invited to a community on a forum, then you, 
you just by definition, you're going to change the dynamic. People aren't going to feel as comfortable speaking to one another. The democratization of watch communities, which in general is a good thing, also has these negative side effects of you can no longer be the same type of watch lover. You now need to be a diplomat and you now need to deal with a bunch of people that you know, aren't in it for the watch lovers. They're in it for maybe other reasons. And I think one of the weirdest things I've seen over the last couple of years, and I'd love your opinion on it, is for lack of a better term, I'll call it the poser collector. Now, here's what I mean. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> please, please, please go on. You, you know that your love of watches is irrational, just as I do. You spend a lot of money on these little things that basically make you happy and maybe a few other people, but it's, you know, it's, it's a hobby, okay? It's a hobby. You like watches. You put up with a lot of nonsense to like watches. Nothing about being identified as a collector means anything to you, right? It doesn't give you anything. It's really just about watches. Yet, we started going to events where there's individuals that will buy the watches that they think are popular, that will talk the talk, and they're, they're positioning themselves as though they are, in fact, real enthusiasts when they simply want admiration or acknowledgement or ego stroking from the industry and the rest of the community of enthusiasts. And it's a weird thing because I don't really know what's in it for them, but maybe you can offer some thoughts on who these people are, why they are, and help explain them to the listeners a little bit better than I am. Yeah. And again, I, you know, I, you and I see it in watches. I'm sure it happens everywhere. In fact, I was on a, a panel a few months ago where it was uh, someone from the world of art, someone from the world of watches, and someone from the world of jewelry. And each of us kept saying, well, but what's different about watches? And they're saying, it's exactly the same. So this happens in the world of art, too, a yeah, lot, but... um, where people, do, you know, they, they buy stuff, right? And they buy stuff because they think that it, it makes them look good. Um, and there's, there's a particular guy um, uh, who's very active on Instagram and owns a lot of phenomenal watches, and you know, not I, I'm. The coincidence is is pretty striking. He spent I don't know a couple of years basically replicating my entire collection. Weird. <laughs> and and then and then he just kept going right. And so he just he just buys stuff. He buys stuff. He posted. He buys stuff. He, he's one of the guys who like has like pictures of four watches down his arm. You know hyper expensive, but it's obvious he's not a watch lover. And I've met him, uh, you know, I've met him and I know people who know him and he just kind of strikes you wrong. And I asked my, my enthusiast friends uh, and uniformly, and, and there was, in fact, there was just a discussion in a WhatsApp group on the other day and someone brought up his Instagram handle. I said, you know, I'm not sure about this guy. And, and, <laughs> and, and one of the other people, right. You know, oh, I, I, I know that guy and he's an ass. Um, you know, and, and it's, I think it's because people who, are, who really are enthusiasts have such a, an emotional connection, uh, with, with the people in the business and the watches they create. You see these folks who, as you say, they buy what they think is popular. Um, they, they don't really know watches and I'm not talking about, you know, they, they know what this little Springer lever 93 layers deep does because I'm not a deep expert in that stuff myself, but they don't even, I mean, they can't even really tell you what they like about it. 
Yeah. So this is the this is the enduring question. They're great for the industry because I guess they they buy watches and they're easier to sell to because they're not as discriminating as the real enthusiasts. But where's the sex appeal in it? Are you getting chicks because you're a watch collector? I don't know. Guys like you and me that that are the real enthusiasts, we see right through it really quick. So it's like it's not that they're bad people, but like we can't really talk watches with them because that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in some type of social proofing or something like that. So it's like from a psychological standpoint, I always just get curious, what are their motivations? I don't know. I, th- I do think that uh, the ability to publicize yourself uh, through things like Instagram uh, helps drive this because there are a lot of, you know, kind of low, low information consumers of online media. And they look at this and they go, geez, you know, this this person has all this fantastic stuff and, uh, you know, and, and they get a lot of likes and comments and I, 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 they must find it gratifying, um, you know, and, and but they're they're obviously interested in different things, right? They're not interested in the intrinsic nature of the craft itself. Do you think that they would consider us snobs? And if so, is that a fair assessment? Um, you're making me think about it. I don't, snobs, maybe, maybe not. I, the, I, I shouldn't say it. The word that comes to mind is losers. <laughs> that here are these guys that are just so, you know, they're so interested in this stuff. I mean, you know, kind of nerds, right? Um, and, and that that's for them really what it's not, not, not what it's all about. It's about the acquisition of coveted objects, but we make them coveted, right? So it takes so much effort to get to the point where you can actually, as an educated person, authentically covet something that if it wasn't for us, they wouldn't have anything to be into in the first place. Uh, uh, see, now you're being a snob. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but is that a bad thing? You know, the, the, the word snob is thrown around. I think in the, in the worst sense, in the most pejorative sense, a snob is also a poster. If you really look at the definition, there's a pretentiousness, right? You don't actually deserve that level of, dis- of discriminating taste. Whereas I think a lot of the watch lovers do. If you're someone who has gained the education and the resources and the wherewithal to cut aside a slice of your life for buying and appreciating watches, you're clearly not a loser. And you might be a nerd, but it's something that, you know, you're, you're making this thing a thing. If it wasn't for people like us, and I don't think the watch industry really gives us enough credit, whether we're really into it or we're pretending to be into it, the volume of enthusiasm that the industry doesn't pay for is so beneficial to them that I think if all the watch enthusiast communities and magazines and all, all that stuff went away overnight, they'd be in a seriously, seriously problematic position. Yeah, I think I think the the level of you know free publicity and images and attractive images, I mean, the, the level of watch photography among amateurs, I think, is so good these days, uh, and people work at it, and you know, much better in many cases than the photographs that the brands put out. <laughs> yeah, uh, and 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 you know, I, probably the greatest compliment I ever get on my watch photos and I don't know why why people they look at at them they go, it's obvious that you love watches and it's like the greatest compliment I I can get um you know that the image that I took communicates something you know, a, a, an emotional bond uh but brands aren't paying for that right and enthusiasts are out there all the time talking it up uh and I I agree with you it's a tremendous asset to the business 
Um, I think, you know, from the, 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 the perspective of an enthusiast, you know, slash nerd, um, the, the reason I don't have a lot of time for the posers is, you know, what do you talk about? Um, you know, my buddies and I, when we go to the shows, whether it's Basel or Geneva or the big show in New York or LA or wherever we go, um, you know, we always have a dinner where we talk about, you know, what's the best watch of the show? What's the worst watch of the show? And sometimes my best watch will be your worst watch, right? <laughs> And that's where the fun begins. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why didn't you like that one? Well, you know, okay. You know, you learn something, right? As you said, you're talking watches. Um, and it it shapes your own point of view. Uh, and at the same time, you're shaping other people's points of view. You know, who influences collectors? Other collectors. It's 2021. There are self-driving cars, plant burgers, and tourists in space. The least your phone could do is download entertainment in a flash. For that, you should get AT&T 5G. AT&T 5G is fast, reliable, secure, and nationwide. Want to make sure your phone service keeps up with what you need from it? Get AT&T 5G. It's not complicated. 5G requires compatible plan and device. 5G may not be available in your area. See AT&T.com slash 5G for you for details. Exactly, and that's, that's the funny thing. Now, let's talk about how the industry feels about collectors when it comes to collectors being customers. I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard brands and and really prominent retailers kind of wax poetic on how annoyed they are by doing business with collectors. Oh, these guys are the ones that make decisions the slowest. They always want the best price. They're so finicky. If there's any little thing wrong with the watch, they want it they want it fixed immediately. Da da da. There's there's a lot of, you know, complaining that indus- the industry and the retailers have about us as a group. Is that fair or does that just come with the territory of having a, a hyper-enthusiastic base of, base of people who are obsessed with details and have the money to feel like they should be able to receive what they believe they're paying for? Yeah, I, I'll tell you a story. I'll start with a story. Friends of mine and I were at a major brand salon in Geneva uh, a few years ago, and we go in there every time we're in Geneva and we spend time and we there's a one of the sales uh, associates that we always see and talk with and he's like the world's nicest guy and he shows us everything so uh, there was some new watch and, and um, there was a particular technical question about I forget you know how the chronograph jumped or is there something right so some really arcane question and uh, they actually have a watchmaker on staff at this uh, at this boutique. And one of my friends asked the question, and the sales guy said, yeah, I don't know. I'll go ask the watchmaker. And uh, he goes away, away for a few minutes, and he comes back, and <clears throat> he said, well, I asked the, the watchmaker uh, your question. And my friend who had asked the question, and, and what did he say? And the sales guy shook his head, and he said, collectors. <laughs> that, was, that was his response. That sums it up. That pretty much sums it up. It's like these guys who, you know, they 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 just, you know, they they never let it rest. You know, they they want to know everything, and maybe they're critical of some things. And and of course, if you're an enthusiast, you you know, your hope is that this makes you the greatest customer in the world. But in terms of you know, a selling proposition for a retailer, uh, it's it's time consuming for them. As you say, the decision cycles tend to be very long. You know, if you go in into a shop and they say, well, do you want do you want this one or that one? It's like, you know, basically at some point the light's going to go on and, you know, I'm going to buy. Um, but it's going to take a while. I'm going to think about it. 
I mean, look, the retailers want to make money and they want to sell stuff. They're not, you know, a lot of the retailers are not really equipped to handle a lot of the needs that the collectors have. It's sort of a love-hate relationship with with the collectors. And I think that what's, it's kind of, it's important to talk about this way. Even, even though collectors, and again, this is outside the pandemic, we'll just assume that everything is sort of status quo, may represent as, as, as around maybe 20% of the total watch sales around the world. I mean, the other 80% is mainstream or people that are just, you know, luxury enthusiasts aren't necessarily into watches. But, you know, the, the industry's perception is that enthusiasts do not represent a large part of the actual sales. And that may be true, but what they're not taking into consideration is that the volume of the enthusiast community probably makes watches, quote unquote, a thing to the other consumers, right? So that you and I are are talking about the watches we like, taking pictures, writing articles about it, sharing about it, that signals to the rest of the world that they should take watches seriously as a category. So it's sort of like this delicate balance between placating the needs of the collector while at the same time recognizing that you're not just selling the collector because the collectors are no doubt influential beyond their immediate ability to fund the industry through purchases. And I'm just curious what your feelings are on that statement. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that said, of course, there, you know, what's, the, what's the, the average number of, you know, or the, the median number of watches that a, that a person buys, right, in his or her lifetime? The answer is probably one, right? One point zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that, that there's a big volume of people who go out, they buy one watch or maybe they, in their life they buy two watches and that that creates a lot of revenue a lot of those folks you know don't don't care about collectors or opinions you know, i mean that's a, that's a lot of volume out there but i think once you kind of get past that point um yeah kind of the in, influence to to revenue ratio with people who are just fanatical about something and are net promoters right to, to use marketing speak uh for the industry um you know missionaries uh it's it's tremendously it's tremendously valuable. It's a difficult thing to communicate to the brands because even though this is such an old industry, so many of the people today sort of think on like a quarter by quarter basis. What has been your strategy? Because again, a lot of people, you know, want your advice. What has your strategy been to tell them this is how to get what you want in the media, but what you really need to do, as the watch industry has always done, is think of the long term. None of the goals you have are you're going to accomplish overnight. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, and I I think there's a there's a big difference between the what I'll call the product side of of these enterprises in a lot of cases and the marketing side, right? That on the product side, I think there's actually a, uh, because the lead times on development are so long, if for no other reason, you have to take to some extent a long view uh, and say, okay, look, you know, we're this, you know, the watches we're going to introduce four seasons from now, four years from now, we're thinking about now. Um, uh, whereas you've got, you know, the kind of the new hotshot who's the new brand manager for Asia Pacific uh, out in the market who's saying, well, I got to, you know, I've got a revenue number I've got to hit, and how am I going to do that? Um, and that, I think that can cause some, some disconnects. Here's an interesting question. Um, have you seen any correlation between, I'll call it brand management style and their ability to deliver a really satisfying watch? Or can a company make an amazing watch irrespective of sort of how the upper management or their marketing or distribution strategy is? 
Okay, I'm trying to think of some examples. Uh, and you know, maybe I won't mention the by name. So uh, Duff companies who make great have made great watches. I think there's a lot of it. I, I mean, I guess from my perspective, I'll give you my opinion, is Switzerland can routinely make a superlative watch product, even though the company itself doesn't seem to know how to do too much more than that. Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm. Yeah, I, I guess I was trying to think the other way around. Of you know, the, the, plenty of great marketers that make terrible products. Yeah, they're they're they are there are a lot of them. But yeah, I guess I guess so. I mean, they're they're. I don't. Know, I I think of. Uh, well, here's the problem. You know, in, in that kind of world, I mean, th- those brands, I think, to some extent, are in peril. Um, and you know, you're talking earlier about you know the 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 posers who basically buy watches they think other people think are popular. There is this tremendous convergence of demand on a small number of hot watches and hot watch brands. Um, and so it's possible you know, to make really great watches and go out of business. What, what do you think is actually one solution? I know it's like a million dollar question, but right now, sort of the, the, the status quo on, on social media and stuff like that is if you're not, if you're not a Gary or Ariel, it's very easy to get siloed into just a couple of brands, you know, the Rolexes and the Audemars Piguet, the Pateks, Richard Mills. Again, these are mostly pretty high price levels, but they seem to get the lion's share of the attention. There's very, there's various answers for why that is, but what do you think the industry could do about it so that the other many, many other watches and things like that get a little bit more of their fair share of attention? Well, the, you know, the way I got introduced to some of the kind of the, the, the smaller high quality brands was at retail. And I think that there's a role there. Uh, I think if you're depending on throw weight in the media uh, or, you know, are a zillion people going to post pictures on Instagram of, of, of your watch, um, you know, there's a, there's a scale problem um, where there are going to be a thousand photos of the new Audemars Piguet Royal Oak for every one picture of your new, you know, Parmigiani annual calendar chronograph. Um, And, uh, you know, I was saying saying earlier, right? The the needs are the same, but the mechanisms differ. I think this is a, an instance maybe in which, um, you know, to have good specialty retailers uh, who are to some extent a vanishing breed, uh, where you can go in there and they'll say, you, you may not have heard of this, but you know, I've gotten to know you a little bit. Maybe you'd be interested in in this, you know, and uh, to 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 get people to 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 at least consider, right? Broaden their consideration set where they're not coming in off the street and say, well, do you have the new uh, Rolex Submariner? If not, I'm not interested. Um, uh, you know, to where it's, 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 you're broadening people's tastes. I think obviously, you know, you and I and others like us play a role in that. Um, and but that's us now. Those specialty retailers have basically turned into us and we unfortunately don't get paid for it. But it's still there. It's just the it's just the, the roles have changed a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know the I guess it, you know just we haven't talked at all really about the you know my, my collection, which is fine because I'm sure that's pretty boring to people. But if you look at it, it's pretty eclectic, um, you know. And and one one thing that I hope that that people who you know look at my photos and read my stuff get and talk to me is that there are a lot of great watches out there at, at all price points and from some unexpected sources and that 
you should be looking at you know the Japanese watches and the German watches and the Swiss watches and the Finnish watches and the Russian watches, uh, and that there's just cool stuff to learn about and to own, um, and that sometimes you're gonna you know you're gonna get a better deal uh, getting a watch that's cooler uh, if you're not so obsessed with what the brand name is on the dial. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. I because again, I didn't want to put you on the spot, of course, and be like, Gary, tell me about your watches. But I think it is important to position yourself a little bit as a collector. You are someone that buys or is known to buy some of the more elaborate, expensive watches out there. You no doubt have eclectic taste and things like that. What do you attribute to having given you the confidence to buy expensive watches that might break, that you'll never necessarily be able to sell? I think that there's, like I said, an element of, of confidence there. Other people can appreciate them, but to get them and things like that, is it because you got into watches back when that was more accepted behavior? Is it that you have um, an accelerated sense of these are for me, I never really have to get rid of these pieces? Help explain what some of your strategies are behind buying watches. And again, for the people listening, um, you might want to mention some some ballpark valuations of the types of average watches you might buy because I think it's very different to listen to a collector that buys $2,000 watches versus $20,000 watches versus $200,000 watches. There's a lot of different mental processes to go on because those are by no means equal choices. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, you know, again, I will, tr- I'll try not to go on too long about this because, you know, I love the watches. But, uh, you know, you make a great point, I, you know, the, uh, about different value tiers or pricing tiers and, um a really good friend of mine has, has a model, a portfolio model for watch collecting, which I think is great. He said, look, there are foundational watches, which are the which are ones that could serve as the basis for any collection over a long period of time. There are fun watches, which are watches, you know, that we, no matter what your budget is, you know, that you could afford and are fun and you don't really care about, uh, you know, about value. And maybe you'll buy and sell a lot of those over time. And there are patronage watches where, you know, primarily from independents, small makers, um, where you're trying to obviously both enjoy the watches, but also uh, contribute to the to the watchmaking uh, crafts and arts and that they stay alive. And uh, I'm I'm collecting, you know, buying, sometimes selling because, you know, no one has infinite funds uh, across all those categories and, ac- and across price points. So, um, you know, I, I, and. I started, you know, really getting into watches pretty seriously over 25 years ago. So, you know, I I went through the whole phase of you know buying stuff I liked, and then that five years later, three years later, what the heck was I thinking? You know, <laughs> it, it wasn't that I you know, I had some special insight that no one else has. <laughs> it's that I bought stuff, and then you know my tastes developed and changed. But I think that's that's part of the drill. If you expect to buy. 10 watches and own all 10 20 years from now, um, that's probably an irrational expectation. And so I, you know, I started, um, and a brand I still uh, own a lot, uh, uh, JLC, Jajela Coot. Um, and those watches are, uh, by and large, you know, what, five, five to $20,000 watch, $5,000 to $20,000 watches, and really beautifully made uh, in the sense of being inventive and, they, for years, as you know, right, made made the movements for all the other watch companies, um, and just really an interesting, interesting brand. I, I came to them early. I think you know, a lot of people they either kind of find a brand like that, 
or they go with a brand like Rolex, right? And they become Rolex enthusiasts. Well, I kind of went that that route, right, into Swiss watchmaking of a of a more specialized kind. And I think that helped, right? Because they make watches that are rectangular watches. They may, you know, I mean, they're not all kind of mainstream watches. Um, and then I'm there was a retailer here in California, Northern California, uh, by the name of Tim Jackson, who's in Southern California now. And he was fanatical about the independence. And he would fly them over for, for, to, meet the, to meet the collectors. Um, and, you know, you meet the maker, want the watch, right? You, you, so I, I, I got into the whole independent realm pretty early. So, uh, you know, for years I was buying watches, you know, you lease Nardans for 3000 bucks and, you know, watches I don't own anymore. And then, you, you know, I think a lot of people do this. You go through a cycle where you sell three to buy one. You know, you sell three to buy one. So, you know, along a data graph. Uh, I just I just talked about that in a in an article. We did a we did a point counterpoint article on the blog to watch, and yeah. the question was, is there an ideal watch collection size? And we sort of went back and forth on this. And I, I pointed out something interesting. It goes exactly to what you said, so I'm glad you validated it. And the idea is this: over time, you you know, as a watch collector, you just naturally buy watches each year. And if you did the math, that would mean that most collectors, you know, who have been doing that have collection sizes potentially in the hundreds. But through our survey data, we find something very different happens. People, even though they've been collecting for 20 years, have collections on average around 20 to 30 watches. Yeah. And the only way that comes about is exactly what you said, and this is what I said, and this, again, no one's actually said this to me, so to deduce it. You take multiple watches to trade up for one. So you naturally decrease your collection size because your aim is to get better watches. And as a result of trading, you end up reducing the size of your collection because you're not trading one for one. You're doing, like you said, three for one. So I'm really glad you said that because I was identifying this as being common behavior, but not a lot of people have really thought it through that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and, and probably I, don't, I haven't counted lately, but I probably around 30, 30, you know, real watches, uh, in, 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 in the box. And, uh, so it's about right. Yeah. And as, as you say, you know, you, you, you sell three, you buy one and then, then something happens. So, you know, uh, you, you know, I ended up with like a, a data graph, which is a really nice, nice watch. And I bought it used for like, I don't know, 30,000 bucks, which is a lot of money still is. Um, and those it's kinds of like a third of what the retail price is. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that some other time. Right? <laughs> uh, but then what happens is, you know, you, you keep, you want nicer, nicer watches. And then you end up, you have 10 watches and you have nothing to wear. You know, even though I wear all my watches, it's like, well, I'm going to the pool. Do I really want to wear a $50,000 watch? No, Not really. I, I, Not need, really. A, I need a beater. So you, you, you say, well, geez, what, what's an attractive thousand dollar watch or $1,500 watch. So, you know, in my collection now I've got, you know, I have uh, a Ming uh, watch that was what I, uh, I don't know, $1,500 watch. And I've got, um, a, uh, Corona Tokyo watch, which was a $1,500 watch. And I wear them a lot. And I've got, um, I own a Dufour Simplicity, um, which is, you know, the, the market has gone crazy for those. And they're, you know, they're really valuable watches, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, uh, and, you know, some Patex, uh, uh, I have a few vintage watches, which we haven't really talked about. Uh, in general, my bias is to support living watchmakers, uh, right. as opposed to swapping money back and forth with other people for, for watches that were made a long time ago. But there are certain, 
classic pieces um, that just really speak to me, you know, and that I think, you know, that I really just wanted to have. Um, Also, and if I may be a psychologist, you're a people person. And when you meet these people and you like what they do, you want to support them. So I'm guessing that a lot of these watches, when you wear them, you think about the person who you want to support. And for you, that's a big part of the enjoyment. Oh, yeah. The, the whole aspect of, of patronage and also just the connection with them, uh, that they're out there. It's a struggle going out on your own to be an, in, be an independent watchmaker. And they're expressing something important about who they are. You know, so whether it's Tim and Bart Gronefeld in the Netherlands or uh, Raman Gauthier or I'm wearing a watch from a guy named Ludovic Balwar today, right? Who makes how many watches a year, you think? Half a dozen? I don't know. Yeah, small number. Small number. And they're really funky, unusual pieces. But I think of, of, of Ludovic, absolutely. You know, every time I, I see the watch, even if I don't wear it, and every time I wear it, he's just a charming delightful, inventive, clever guy. And I, I totally agree. And the, and it's it's sad because, you know, we're thinking about this during the pandemic. This can't happen because we can't see people, these relationships and these emotions. Um, it's just much more challenging to have them be formed, which is why I, I echo your sentiment on, I can't wait till I can see people again. Speaking of the pandemic, how has it maybe changed your watch wearing habits? Now that you don't have to wear watches for other people to see, have you found any difference when you basically want wear watches just to use and for your own personal enjoyment? You know, I'm in in fewer formal in-person business settings. Uh, and so as a result, I I'm I think I've tended to wear the the real dressy pieces less. Um, and and I guess I maybe I, to some extent I I, I match my clothing to my watches a little bit. So I feel a little silly, you know, wearing some super formal watch with a sweatshirt and, and sweatpants, <laughs> um, but I'll do it. Um, but otherwise it, it's not a lot different. I mean, typically, you know, I'll wear uh, in the course of a week, I'll wear four or five different watches. Uh, there'll be, you know, sometimes I'll switch every day and sometimes I'll just keep one on for two or three days in a row. And that really hasn't changed. I mean, I'm not constantly, you know, running running to the bank uh safe deposit box or you know the the few watches i have at home in the safe and every half hour switching them out <laughs> but, that's uh, okay if you do some people do that oh no i'm not criticizing it it's just it, it, it you know the 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 uh the the being cooped up part hasn't hasn't led me to uh uh to do that i i i guess a little more i'm taking them out and, uh and playing with them winding them setting the calendar watches just enjoying them you know, which is less about wearing and more about appreciating. Uh, and I've got the luxury of a little more time to do that. There's so much to talk about all these topics, especially your collection and some of these stories and things like that. For for this chat, we're, we're sort of nearing the end. And I want you to answer two questions just to sort of wrap things up. And again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Gary. These are the two things I'll answer. One, it's hopefully towards the end of the pandemic. And there's two people out there that would like your advice. One is the watch industry itself. So I want you to give a couple of like Gary sentiments on what you think the watch industry should know or be thinking about for 2021 and beyond. And then just do a slight a slight change of direction and say the same type of things to watch lovers out there. Because I think that you have a maturity and a level of experience 
that allows you to say things and be calm. Whereas people in both these groups, the watch industry and the watch collector, just given the current state of affairs in around the world, are probably anxious and could use some of your soothing words. So what do you have to say to them? Okay, soothing words. Uh, I, for, the, for the industry, um, you know, promotion is important, of course. Uh, you know, marketing is great. Uh, I worked uh, in my career with a, a fellow professor who's reputed to be the world's greatest uh, expert on uh, marketing channels, right, retail, wholesale. And a client once asked him, what's the most important thing about success in marketing channels? And he said, great products. Um, and I think for the watch industry, um, you know, I think less, less is more in terms of the number of items and variations and quality will rise to the top. Um, and people haven't lost the ability to uh, recognize quality and to appreciate fine, fine craftsmanship. Uh, and, and the demand will be there, right? If, if there's anything that, that, you know, in terms of soothing words or words of encouragement, um, the level of enthusiasm through this whole period for watches and the number of people I see getting interested in watches and the number of people who respond to, you know, my uh, photos uh, on Instagram and, and you know, the, the age assortment, uh, you know, the enthusiasm for watches has, has not died. Um, and I think if... Uh, if the industry can uh, can come up with things that are engaging enough and fascinate new entrants, new buyers, uh, and draw them away from the recent mania for uh, vintage pieces and older pieces and looking to the past, I think you know if we can if we can get the industry and its consumers looking to the future, I think that's going to be a, a big key. Um, for watch lovers, uh, you know, the, 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 the word lover, I think, is really important. You know, buy, buy what you love. Form your own tastes. Um, have confidence in your own. Trust yourself. Um, you know, do your homework. Talk with your friends. Understand what the, what the options are. But at the end of the day, you know, if everyone had exactly the same set of watches, how boring a world would it be? Uh, and... Um, you know, take advantage of the proliferation uh, and the wonderful variety uh, of uh, what's out there, uh, and educate yourself. And uh, you know, I've I've I'm trying to think of a time when I've ever had someone come up to me and say, "Geez, you know, you didn't buy uh, the Royal Oak and the Nautilus. You bought this other stuff, and you're a moron." No, you know, it's, uh, people, it's like, gee, you're someone who really seems to trust your own taste. And I, maybe I would buy what you bought, but that's where you start the conversation. Uh, and, and, you know, just, just remember, right, there are watches involved, but, but ultimately it's all about the people. You got to have a little bit of a thick skin. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Gary Getz is a man who knows what he's talking about. So I really appreciate you, you lending your voice and your ideas with the superlative audience. Gary, I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.
Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs>